Welcome to Tube Talk, the show dedicated to helping you become a better video creator so you can get more views, subscribers, and build your audience. Brought to you by vidIQ. Download for free at vidIQ.com. Oh, yeah! Welcome back to another episode of Tube Talk presented by vidIQ. I am your host, Viper, the man about tech executive producer here at the IQ. And let me ask you all a question today. Don't you want your content to be viewed by as many people as humanly possible? I mean, isn't that the overall goal of any creator on YouTube? I mean, those who aren't using YouTube as a repository just to dump content and different things like that. You want your content to be seen, viewed, listened, whatever, by as many people as humanly possible. So that is the whole goal of today's podcast. I have a good friend of mine coming on here in a few minutes, and we are going to talk about accessibility as it relates to content and how to make your content more accessible to maybe people that can't see, can't hear, whatever the case may be. We're talking about all things accessibility with my man, Steve Saylor, who is a major accessibility advocate, especially in the video game space. He is legally blind, but he's still going to come on the podcast with me and we're going to talk about accessibility. But before we bring Steve in here, I just want to address the Tube Talk shout out on Twitter that we received from Rebecca Chan. This is almost becoming a weekly thing from Rebecca. She put out a tweet earlier today alluding to the podcast that just went out earlier today, the one from last week with Jake Thomas. And she says, I aspire to get to the level of saying I forgot I had a psychology degree. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy, right? Like getting to a point where you completely forget that you have a college degree. I mean, I'm, I'm all guilty myself. I know most of y'all are probably not aware, but your boy Viper actually has a bachelor of science degree in physics. Yes, the science, physics. But I probably forgotten 95% of the physics I've learned in college because I've gone on to do other things with my life. But shout out to Rebecca for that mention on Twitter leading to uh, last week to talk episode with Jake Thomas. Rebecca, always appreciate you supporting. So thank you. But back to the topic at hand today. The one thing that I do because I'm not accessibility minded, but what I do on my videos that I upload on my own channel is that I will pay for captions. I will pay a service to come in and caption every video that I upload to YouTube. So at the very least, if people can't hear my videos, they can at least read the captions. And that allows my content to be accepted by more people than it normally would because I have taken people into account that can't necessarily hear my content. And at the very base level, that is an easy level of accessibility to enable for more people to have access to your content. Obviously, there are other ways to enable accessibility in terms of content, and we'll get into more of that with Steve. But at the basic level, making sure that your captions are on point is probably the least minimum effort that creators can put into because you all know how I feel about YouTube captions. They are not the best, okay? I know they've gotten better over time, but I am not putting money or I am not putting my stock in YouTube auto captions. No, absolutely, positively not. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and bring Steve Taylor in and let's talk about all things accessibility. So let's roll to the podcast. Welcome back to Tube Talk presented by vidIQ. And this week's very special guest is a creator, host, podcaster, Twitch streamer, gamer. We have Steve Saylor in the building. What's up, man? How you doing? Viper, it's so good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. This is a long time coming. Like we, we I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. So this is an honor to be on the show for, uh, with you today. 
I appreciate you, man. I, I know how you stay busy, so I appreciate you making the time, Steve. So thank you. No, thank you. So for my listeners who are not familiar with you and what you do, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm a content creator, uh, Twitch ambassador, as well as an accessibility advocate and consultant in the video game industry. Uh, so basically what that means is that I will go to and talk to studios about how to be able to make their games more accessible for disabled players. And I kind of use and create content around accessibility uh, and what uh, like a, a, what kind of is needed for accessibility I, by doing reviews and previews and for those who may be wondering, like, hey, it was like, what is there anything that they might have played that I probably would have worked on? I worked on games like The Last of Us Part Two, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, wow. Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, recently of Horizon Forbidden West. Yeah, I've kind of worked on a, on a few fun games, and uh, so I can't take all responsibility. It's all the major, like, huge team effort, but then I got to consult for like a little tiny bit of it. That is pretty major, man. That is pretty major. So I want to back up a little bit. Sure. So when we think about accessibility, I think when a common person thinks about accessibility, they think about things like maybe accessibility as it relates to being able to get a wheelchair in and out of a vehicle or building or accessibility in terms of certain technologies and different things like that. But obviously, there's a whole other side to accessibility that we as common folk don't think about uh, enough. So if I ask you to describe or tell me what accessibility means to you, what would you tell the people listening? Yeah, so accessibility essentially just means equal access to the things that we would want to do on a day-to-day basis, whether that's being able to go out to a restaurant or uh, get into a car or go out to a, like a concert or play video games or use a computer, use technology, create content. Anything that that opens up the ability for disabled people to be able to utilize the things around them, uh, because the way that a lot of disabilities are is that it's not necessarily like an on off switch where like you see just people kind of like like even for myself, I have a condition that's actually called nystagmus, which means that I am according to the government, legally blind, but that term legally only just means that I hit that sort of certain level that the Canadian government, because I live in Canada, the, the Canadian government basically says, oh yeah, you are actually disabled and you're entitled to benefits therein. But essentially it is more of a spectrum than it is an on-off switch. And so like, it's very rare for even someone who's blind, like say it's very rare for someone to be like a, like a Stevie Wonder or a Ray Charles that is completely sightless. That still exists. And there's definitely quite a few folks that have that, but generally like a lot of times, nine times out of 10 or nine people out of 10 uh, who are blind actually do have some vision. And that's the same with pretty much every other disability as well. Um, Even some folks that even have the same like actual disability in the same condition, may have completely different experiences uh, with that same condition. We kind of always subscribe to like sort of what we call the social model disability and that the problem isn't the disabled person themselves. It's nothing to do with the disability. The problem is access to the things that we want to be able to do. That's what the social model is. So basically, if you think about it, if you try to be able to get into a restaurant and the only way to be able to get into the into the building is by growing up a couple of steps and you're in a wheelchair and you can't go up a couple of steps and the building doesn't offer a ramp or something to be able to get the person in a wheelchair into the building. That's the problem, and that that's what you're, uh, with the social media of uh, or social aspect of accessibility by providing a ramp or something, uh, an elevator or something to be able to help that person gain access to that building. That's the problem that we're trying to solve. And in with within video games, it's about trying to be able to give players the exact same access that all our friends are ha- have when they're playing games, but just basically that are so our disability doesn't get in the way. Long-winded answer, but that's basically what it comes down to. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, man, I'm glad you broke it down that way because you were talking about even people that are legally blind can still see. You do Twitch streams, you make videos, you make content, so you're not completely blind. What would you say to people that feel like you're lying, that you're being dishonest <laughs> about your disability? Because I'm pretty sure you get that. Oh, my God. It, I, I don't know any other disabled person that actually like that doesn't get that question. It's like, oh, you're faking it or you're you're not actually disabled. Like I, we hear that uh, every single time. And yes, invisible disabilities do exist because when you when you look at me, you don't see myself as bl- uh, see me as blind. But like I have like these thick, really thick glasses that basically only allow me to be able to see to a certain point. So generally, whenever what I like to be able to say is it's just that everyone in their lives are going to be able to are going to need some sort of form of accessibility. As we get older, our bodies are not going to be able to be able to do the same things as we used to do when we were younger or like in our like 20s or whichever. So generally, there is going to be certain situations that accessibility now could help you in the future. The way we break it down is that there's three different ty- uh, disability types. There's permanent, there's temporary, and then there's situational. Permanent is something like mine, where you have a you've either were born uh, with a disability, or a, at some point in their life an incident happens and you become disabled, and that's kind of a permanent disability. Then there's the temporary one, say you break your arm, or you go to the to the eye doctors and get your eyes dilated and you can't you can barely see for a day. And those are things that are essentially that at some point your body will heal back to where you originally were but you were temporarily disabled and then there's the situational ones where say for instance you just had a baby and you want to be able to get, like play a video game for instance and the baby just wants to be able to like you want to put the baby down and you don't want to disturb it because you, you don't want the, the baby to wake up and and because the noise you're playing while playing call of duty so accessibility options be like hey, keep the have the sound down or the sound turned off so that you can still be able to play a lot of the accessibility that say for deaf and hard of hearing would benefit and so allow you to be able to still play your games but without having to basically wake the baby up. So those are the types of things that essentially what it breaks down to is that everybody at some point in their lives will need accessibility at some point. So the more access we have now to as many people as possible essentially can be able to allow us in the future to be able to uh, still have equal access access to the things that we're used to. Sorry, did that answer your question? I can't, yeah. I can't remember if I just rambled or not. <laughs> yes. And um, again, I love the way you highlighted that because again, just because you're not disabled doesn't mean that there won't come a time in your life where you might be in a situation where you are disabled or your accessibility gets limited in some way, shape or form. Uh, when I was growing up, I had an accident where I was playing basketball. I fell on my knee the, uh, the wrong way and I dislocated my kneecap. So I was on crutches for a few weeks. So mm-hmm. at that point, I was technically disabled. I didn't have use of both of my legs. So this stuff can happen to anybody at any time. And just because it doesn't really affect you now doesn't mean that it might not potentially affect you down the road. So I, I am on the side that you are that we definitely need to be thinking about accessibility for the long term because it's not just a you thing or an I thing. It's an all of us thing. So appreciate mm-hmm. the way you eloquated that. So thank you. Sure. So I remember watching the video that you made maybe a, a year or two or three years ago now trying to detail and show people what you see as a quote-unquote blind person. I want you to take us through that video and try to describe to listeners how it is that you see because of your disability, because obviously you don't have full sight. So when you look at something, how exactly do you see it as opposed to somebody with normal vision? Yeah, so like I said, I have a condition that's called nystagmus. What that basically means is that I have a muscle that essentially 
basically kind of moves my eyes back and forth. It's an involuntary muscle that there's no, nothing that can be done to be able to fix that without doing more permanent damage to my eyes and essentially just moves my eyes back and forth, which prevents me from being able to focus. So everything is just really blurry. I can see lights, I can see shapes and I can see color, but I can't see really any uh, details. So the way I kind of break it down in that video uh, was that, okay, if you're kind of playing a, a video game where you're sitting in a couch about five to six feet away from the TV, which is generally kind of the average living room gaming setup, I kind of show what it's like to be able to play giving the game with my vision. So I basically makes it makes it everything small, makes it everything really blurry. You can make out some details, but not a lot. So a lot of times when it comes to like playing games, like stuff like a heads up display, like the HUD is hard to be able to see or any text that comes up on screen is really hard to see. The only thing I didn't want to include in that video because I didn't want to make people sick is that technically as well, my vision shakes quite a bit. So that can be able to make some uh, someone motion sick. And I just thought, well, in editing, I don't want to make anyone sick. So I just didn't bother. I just didn't add that in. But that is the an, an additional aspect of my uh, my vision that I can't really see. Basically, also kind of like another way to break it down is that if you think of like perfect vision as like 2020. So like everyone thinks of like that's like kind of considered normal, quote unquote, uh, vision. Well, what that technically means is that when you're looking at something that's 20 feet away, if you have 20-20 vision, that means that that object is 20 feet away. But for my vision, with glasses on, it's more like 2200. Like if I look at someone's 20 feet away, to me, it looks like it's 200 feet away. And then with glasses off, it's more like 2700. Um, so all my glasses do is just basically helps kind of clear things up a bit so I don't necessarily need to have a guide dog or uh what you see like kind of like a someone has like a, a blind cane when they're walking around so i don't need those i can't be independent in that aspect i do have a cane that i use but i don't need to use it as often unless i'm in like a dark environment or in an area where there's a lot of crowds and i'm not too super familiar so basically like airports for instance kind of thing so that's kind of basically what my vision actually is got you man the fact that you don't let that stop you from living your best life and being active and impactful in the creator community is nothing short of astonishing and amazing, man. So kudos to you for not letting that stop you and still going out there and putting in work and making an impact. Steve, you are the man, bro. Duh. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. <laughs> no doubt. So obviously, you know way more about accessibility than I do, but I try to be accessibility minded when I'm making my videos. So the one thing that I do when I put out my YouTube videos is that I will pay to have them captioned. Mm -hmm. So all my videos have captions on them. So if you can't hear, then you can enable the captions and go from there. What else can we creators do to make our content more accessible to people that are disabled? Um, I think actually, I mean, captions is, is a huge step forward. You would not believe how like how often that is just a big issue, not only just in like creating for for YouTube, but also for Twitch, for even posting social videos on Twitter, Instagram or TikTok. Having those captions there helps not only those who are deaf and hard of hearing, of course, but it also helps those with cognitive disabilities. So anyone that has any sort of like mental condition or brain damage, that things can be a bit overwhelming. So having those captions there to be able to read is a much better experience uh, for them. And having proper captions is the way to go. And I know that people think, well, YouTube has automatic captions. I'm, yeah. I'm good. It's not. No. In the community, we call them auto craptions for yes. a reason. Because yes. <laughs> <laughs> they are just bad. I don't understand 
understand. There is, this is okay. This is a little mini rant about Google for a second because Google has actually really good auto transcription using their cloud uh, captioning service. Like I use it for my Twitch streams where I have a plugin that uses OBS that actually will use cloud captioning to be able to um, have my streams captioned like live and auto transcriptions. And it is so much better than whatever they're using for YouTube. It's like YouTube is like version like one and the cloud captions is like version 10. It's like so far ahead. I don't understand why they can't get this to work, Viper. But anyway, so don't rely on YouTube captions, uh, the auto captions to work. You either transcribe it yourself and there's ways to be able to do that in software. Like for instance, Adobe Premiere actually has the ability to be able to do transcriptions within the app itself. And then you can go in and manually edit them and you can export it as as a subtitle file that you can upload directly to YouTube with timing and it'll work just as like how you edit it within the app itself. Or you could do as as I've done this before and, and the same with you Viper is that you pay for someone to be able to transcribe it for you. And depending on the service you use, it can cost anywhere between like a dollar or dollar twenty five per minute. So it's definitely a lot more expensive if you have a, like a hour long type video, but it is doable. And then there's ability to be able to have a transcription. So like a kind of like almost like a word document of a conversation, uh, for instance. And and I'm, I'm not throwing shade at Vibra. I don't know if this is the, if you do have this for this podcast, but podcasts in and of itself also like should be able to offer transcriptions for all their audio. And it's, I know it's a lot. I know it's definitely can be expensive for especially for hour long show to be able to do it manually, but it definitely can help for uh, for those who want to be able to enjoy the podcast, but can't uh, listen to it for for whichever reasons. Uh, I guess another ways to be able to kind of make them more accessible eliminate a lot of like sort of like the flashy kind of transitions or like kind of quick very extremely quick clips because that can actually have effect on those who might be prone to seizures even sometimes the most kind of like even the flashiest effects that may not necessarily cause a seizure but it can definitely cause someone to become motion sick um like even myself like i found that with my vision that if something kind of like really really quickly kind of pops up on screen or even just kind of like really bright flashes can have an effect on uh, on me when i'm trying to be able to watch a video so keep that in mind. So I know a lot of people like to use like sort of the glitch kind of like transition or a glitch sort of like effect on some of their videos. That's great. But keep it like you can totally use that. But keep in mind just how quickly those can be flashed up on screen so that uh, you're not damaging someone's uh, uh, like hurting them or caught potentially causing a seizure. In other ways, if you want to be able to like be able to describe like yourself. I know that's been kind of a, an interesting sort of topic as of late. The, like if you describe could have a quick description of who you are, of what you look like. So for instance, like myself, I'm a, a white male with blonde hair and dark uh, black rimmed glasses, wearing a black shirt and a gray uh, button up shirt. That's really all the description you need. And that actually helps someone who is blind to be able to at least know, like or kind of give a bit of a visual description of who they are speaking. You can do that in YouTube videos It's kind of more better in like in social situations. Uh, So that way, if you describe who you what you look like and people can see color and they can't really see like people's faces, then they know, oh, that's that's Steve with the black shirt and and the kind of the gray button up shirt. But even just having getting that into practice within a video or just in in live content can can, can really go a long way. And in reality, that's kind of really all that's necessarily needed for uh, for it. I mean, if you want to be able to give like actual voiceover for any text that pops up on screen as well. Hey, I get it. I've been editing videos for over 20 years now. I love a good video that has like dramatic text that pops up on screen with no voiceover and just a little bit of that dramatic music. But sometimes it's it's can be even better if you just do a little bit of voiceover and add that into your videos. And it can really help out a lot, especially for those who are blind and uh, or low vision. Absolutely. So 
I know in the in the content creator space and in the tech space, I know we've been getting slowly better at being more accessible. I know for some of the tech events I watch, they have presentations of what American Sign Language. They obviously have captions enabled. They have presentations in different languages. So they are trying to get better at being more accessible. But there's a tweet that you put out there from June 15th about how you were disappointed at E3 and their <sighs> and their lack of basic accessibility in the majority of their showcases. So talk to us about things that you felt that were missing from E3 as far as uh, accessibility is concerned. I forgot about that tweet. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, they, no, but thank you for bringing that up because, like, it definitely was an issue. So, for those who may not know, uh, or like in the gaming space, E three is kind of like our gaming Christmas. It's like it's basically if you're in the tech space, it's, it's our CES. Like that's basically what it is in the video game space. This year was a little bit different in that there wasn't any live in person uh, event as there has been in the past. There was like a few virtual events uh, in the past two years with the pandemic. This year, we would kind of hope that it was actually going to be in person, but uh, this was kind of virtual. And actually, E3, the official E3 did not happen. But there were uh, studios and companies that decided to do showcases for what games they were going to be coming out at just within that same time period of E3. So it kind of was a quote unquote E3 slash not E3 uh, of this year. And a lot of showcases that that did come out unfortunately did not have a lot of accessibility with or at least a lot of accessible options when trying to be able to watch those showcases for instance they relied on auto captions for the entire presentation there was no american or british sign language translation for any of the uh, those showcases there wasn't any audio description for any of the uh, their showcases and there was a momentum at a certain point even including the past few years when it's been virtual, there was a concerted effort previously to be able to make to, that showcases were more accessible and offering those options. But for whatever reason, this year, it was either an afterthought or wasn't even thought of at all. I, the only showcase that actually had all of those options available was the Xbox Bethesda showcase. Now, some would argue that's probably would be is the best or is the biggest one out of the not E3 we had this year. But they were actually the ones that actually made an effort. Whereas, like, unfortunately, with say, like with Jeff Keighley's Summer Game Fest, none of that was offered. They had an ASL co-stream that they promoted. But in reality, and I know the guy who actually did the ASL co-stream. He would like a lot of people thought, oh, ASL co-stream. Great. Then those who who can read American Sign Language, they, then they're good. But no, like all that person was all because it's a fr- he's a friend of mine. All that person was doing was just giving his own commentary of what he was watching on the stream. So there was no actual translation. It was just him translating what he was saying in, in sign language. And I don't think a lot of people knew that or even the team that sort of said, hey, he's this is the official ASL co-stream even knew that. So. It was kind of like one of those, like a lot of balls were dropped, as it were. And so I called out the industry and was like, hey, like we we want to be able to enjoy and get into the same hype for all these games that you're announcing. But if you're not able to provide access, then we're left out in the corner. Like, for, for instance, like think of it this way. You're invited to a party, like one of the biggest parties that you can be able to go to, like say an event party, like say. Apple throws a party and they invite you to be able to go to it and you get to see all the cool stuff that Apple's working on before anyone else and you can't get into the room because the doorknob isn't working or you can't be like you don't have the physical ability to be able to open a door or whichever. That's what it's like for those disabled people that they want to enjoy the same hype 
and they can hear what's happening inside or they may be able to potentially see what's happening inside, but they can't because it's not the same kind of access as everyone else was getting. And that's kind of what E3 felt like this year. So and I will admit, so there has been a few folks from different studios that have reached out to me that have been like, OK, what can we be able to do about that? And we'll see what what happens uh, when it comes from that. But at least I have a hope that this will change in the future. It's just that, yeah, unfortunately, this E3 was just not as accessible as we kind of hoped. <laughs> well, I'm glad that the folks were paying attention and they reached out to you, which means they at least care about making their showcases more accessible. So hopefully next year when it rolls around, although it probably will be in person next year, but if they do do some of the, the virtual stuff that it will be more accessible than it was this year in your opinion, that would be pretty good. That would be a nice so. improvement, yeah. This episode of Tube Talk is brought to you by vidIQ's channel audit tool, a sort of report card for how your YouTube channel has been performing. When you're in your YouTube studio, the channel audit tool can be found on the left-hand side once you've installed vidIQ on either your Chrome or Firefox browser. As long as you've authenticated your channel, clicking on channel audit will give you a bird's eye view of your videos from the last 30, 60, or even 90 days. I personally use this tool to look for patterns with my content. What types of videos are currently getting the most views per hour? Which videos drove a lot of viewers to subscribe? What types of videos are my competitors creating and how do mine compare? What are the search terms bringing people to my channel in the first place? And if this is sounding like a lot of questions, well, that's probably because I ask too many questions. But that's why I love this tool, because I can get answers to all of them and more. You can access the channel audit tool for free when you download the vidIQ extension at vidIQ.com. You are a consultant to the video game industry. Like you said, you worked on The Last of Us Part 2 and them maximizing their accessibility with that game. So my question to you is, when you review game from the perspective of a disabled person, what are you looking for in a video game that will make it the most accessible in your opinion? Like, what are some of the things that you are looking at? Ooh, that's a very good question. Initially, when I started to do accessibility reviews, it was mostly just from my perspective as a blind person, because that was the experience that I had. That was the, like, so I can have that sort of lived in day-to-day experience of w- what it's like trying to be able to play a game with my disability. But as I've kind of started to learn about different uh, disabilities, I start to kind of learn some of the pain points of when they're trying to be able to play a game and then learning about kind of what would be the best way to be able to go about and trying to be able to add accessibility into that game. And and the thing that sometimes a little bit difficult to for for those who kind of may not necessarily know about accessibility is that this is different than making, say, a website or a TV show or a movie or any kind of entertainment accessible. There are certain sort of standards and guidelines that you can have for all of those to be able to make it accessible. And it's kind of like a checklist where basically you could just check them off and then you've made it a, your piece of content as accessible as possible with video games. Because it's such an interactive medium and every game is different, it is hard to kind of determine what type of like what type of accessibility is needed uh, unless you have the ability to be able to work on it from the very beginning of the game. So when I'm looking at a game that's for review, it's basically sent to a sent a review copy to be able to try to play the game. I generally take a look at if there's like an accessibility menu, because that's a good sign that at least they thought about accessibility to a certain degree. And you see what's available. Um, so stuff like subtitles or the ability to increase uh, text size, narration, colorblind settings, being able to remap controls, like stuff like that are kind of like should be technically standard, but it just really depends on the game of whether or not it's even needed. But it's good to kind of have that uh, as sort of the standard uh, options. And then you start to play the game and you start to kind of like see or, or feel or hear how the game is played. And you start to kind of pick up on certain things that are missing, like 
like, for instance, if there's no visualization for an enemy that's about to attack you from off screen, then someone who is deaf and hard of hearing will have no idea that this uh, that they're about to be able to be attacked if because they can't see the enemy that's on screen. Um, so you would need something like an arrow that basically points, hey, by the way, there's something's about to hit you or the ability to like dodge out of the way uh, with the precise timing or you're constantly having to hit a single button all the time. If, if that's the only way to be able to do that thing to progress forward, not having the ability to be able to push like and hold the button instead of rapidly tap it. That's something that that kind of comes up in gameplay. So it's really just certain things that if you come to get a little bit more of an accessibility specialist, you start to learn the what are sort of the pain points of each disability. And I just sort of tried to review as best as I can with the caveat that I can't speak for everybody. Like I should not be able to speak for for everybody because every disability is different. So I always will say, if there's a, a good chunk of, of accessibility in a game, then I'll say it might be worth trying. If, if it doesn't have it, then I would just say, yeah, no, stay away unless they're able to update it later. But if they are able to do something really well for a specific disability, then that spectrum of disabilities I mentioned earlier can be filled in a little bit better. That means that a majority of those people with that disability should be able to play the game as best as possible. There are definitely outliers in that, but for the most part, they would be able to. And that's kind of where I start to think about, should I recommend the game or not, uh, depending on what is available uh, within it? And that's kind of basically how I do my reviews. Gotcha. Okay. So as you alluded to earlier, you personally had a hand in uh, helping out with The Last of Us Part 2 and their accessibility settings. I remember you saying that The Last of Us Part 2 and probably one of the most accessible video games that you've ever played in your life. Mm-hmm. So what did they do with The Last of Us Part 2 that made it so accessible in your opinion? Uh, there actually was about like three things that they they mostly did. There's a lot, lot of lot of decisions that were made in, into making this game, uh, but there was definitely a, a, a three key decisions that was made to be able to lead them down the path to be able to make it uh, most accessible. First off, they had a little bit of a runway where they started consulting with disability advocate or accessibility advocates and consultants way back in, in working on Uncharted 4, which was their Naughty Dog's previous game before The Last of Us 2. And they were able to add some accessibility in there. So they already had a a mentality of, oh, okay, accessibility might be something we're worth doing. So when they went on to start The Last of Us 2, there were some producers, like higher up producers, that basically was like, you know what? We want to try to be able to add accessibility in here. So they were given, uh, it was kind of early in the production. So they were able to uh, kind of use, utilize the time and resources that they had to see if it was possible. And then when they realized that they were actually able to do a lot of the things that they were, that they wanted to do, and then potentially more, then basically the Neil Druckmann, who is kind of the head of Naughty Dog, was able to kind of sign off and being like, okay, well then let's go for it. Let's add in as much as possible. So that was kind of decision one, was that from the very beginning they were able to uh, look in, in part of the designing of the game ways to be able to make it as uh, accessible for as many people as possible to be able to play. And then they started uh, bring, they started working on that and they started educating themselves about accessibility. And then they also had accessibility consultants come in to be able to help them along the way in certain key points within that process. I was one of those consultants along with about seven others that uh, that helped work on it, uh, ranging from uh, those who are uh, also blind. They had a few other uh, blind consultants. Uh, they had some deaf and hard hearing. They even had some a motor disability and just kind of general consultants in general that kind of made up these eight people that they brought in at any given point to basically make sure and, and play test and 
and provide feedback to those developers to kind of like let them know, okay, this is what needs improvement or this is what would be cool if you try uh, tried adding this, basically giving them feedback that they can be able to go and, and try to be able to make this a little bit better. And then when it kind of came down to it with release, they were able to not only include accessibility as part of the gameplay, built into the gameplay, part built into the design, but then they also offered over 60 plus accessibility options that uh, a player can be able to turn on or off or adjust and customize to fit their play style as best as possible. So when you give that player that much access, then it, they could be able to customize it so that what, like even if there was something that came up during production that they didn't account for, uh, someone with a disability can be able to go in and customize it to make it work for them in a way that they probably didn't even think possible. Did they reach every single uh, every single disability or every single uh, person with disability? No, and I don't think like that high of a bar of trying to be able to make a game 100% accessible would ever be possible, but it had covered a lot of, and probably a majority of those accessibility disability spectrums that I talked about, and it was able to get as many people as possible to be able to play. And I'd say probably to this day, it's probably the only game that was the, mo- the most accessible to, uh, to blind and low vision players, like covering pretty much almost the majority of that spectrum. They, that's the one where they kind of worked, like worked on the most that had the most amount of access for that game. So those kind of three key decisions kind of help make that game currently still, um, as it were, is the most kind of accessible game that we that we currently have to date. That is pretty incredible. And it's also incredible that they brought you in there to help out with that. I mean, the fact that they cared enough to bring in disabled people to help make their product more accessible to as many people as possible. Again, because that's what we're trying to do here. We're mm-hmm. trying to make things as accessible as possible. And the fact that they did that and went that extra mile shows that the care that they have about not only their product, but about reaching the most amount of people impossible and catering to disabled uh, customers as well. So that was pretty awesome. I am very honored that I got to be asked like to go because like getting, getting to go to a studio that you kind of admire is is cool in of itself. So I was very honored to that they that they asked and be like, hey, we want to we want to work with you. Like actually, when they when they came up to ask me, I was speaking at a conference and that's how they first knew about me. And then I uh, I didn't realize they were there. And then some folks from Naughty Dog came up to me and they're like, hey, we should uh, we should work with you on our upcoming project. And uh, they didn't say what it was, but it's like if, at the time everyone knew it was The Last of Us. Like it was just that was just like that was like the, like it was the worst kept secret in the in the video game industry at that point so and i was like working on that kind of a game uh, with that kind of pedigree uh, uh with that kind of studio and 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 working with sony it was like it was a dream that i never thought i would be able to do in my lifetime because this is like viper this is my second career like I, this is this is i'm i'm an old i'm an old dog at this and this is working in video games i didn't think that i was gonna be doing that in my 20s are you kidding me <laughs> But it's pretty cool that we have come to a point where you can actually have a career working in video games because mm-hmm. the industry has progressed as far as catering to accessibility and things like that. So it's a pretty awesome thing, which brings me to my next question. Sure. So moving away from video games for a moment, let's talk about the platforms that we use every day. YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc. I'm pretty sure you use all these at one point or another. How do you feel about where the platforms are and they're being accessible to more people is there a platform that you feel like it's more accessible than others? Or is there a platform that you feel like that can be improved with accessibility? How, how do you feel about that? That's a very good question. Yeah, you're right. I definitely do use a lot of the social platforms we have today, excluding Facebook, but that's just more of a personal preference than, than anything. And But I, I do use pretty much a, a, a majority of them. And I would say as far as the most accessible, it just kind of depends on kind of which sort of aspect of accessibility are they tackling. There's not one that sort of does it like an overall uh, makes it extremely accessible. So for instance, like 
TikTok, which I absolutely love. And uh, I love that sort of organically without even really any sort of push from the disability community that the community on TikTok has sort of like it was enamored with and sort of like I'm trying to think of the, of, of the word here, just sort of like fell in love with the of using captions in their videos. And like that's become a huge thing in TikTok. And it's kind of rare that you will find a video in, in, on your for you page that doesn't have captions to it. And that in of itself was really, really like kind of a big deal. And I did not think that that would sort of be kind of like accepted in, uh, at, at that point. So I would say TikTok to a certain degree, I think like probably uh, at least is more accepted to be a little bit more accessible. There's definitely issues and there's definitely like people that just don't understand how accessibility works. And, and that's the same with everything. But um, there's that Twitter has um, the ability to be able to add like alt text to images. However, um, there was a recent thing actually that I got to, to be a part of um, um, where Twitter was trying to be able to promote alt text to their users. And there was a stat that kind of alarmed me that I did not realize that uh, 0.06% of Twitter users actually add alt text to their images, which basically don't know what alt text is. Alt text basically provides a description for a photo that you would post on Twitter so that blind users who use screen readers to uh, read Twitter, like their Twitter newsfeed, allows them to be able to uh, read what that description is for the user. Because otherwise, if a photo pops up on their newsfeed, it'll just say it's an image. And it just, it's not smart enough to know and to scan that image and know exactly what it is. So alt text allows the person who's posting that image to give like a quick, like a description of what that image is so that those screen readers can be able to pick that up. And you can be able to tell that there's an uh, alt text on the image. If you see like a little alt tag on the bottom left-hand corner of an image, if you see that right. and you tap on it, you can actually see what that description is. That actually helps a blind low, uh, low vision user. So Twitter offers that, but they don't have the ability to be able to post an image without having to like to include alt text you can just still post it without without it and and they're not going to force you to be able to put alt text and then there's the ability to, be able to add captions to videos now on twitter which is great same with instagram to a certain degree instagram does have the auto sort of transcription and you can uh that's kind of really it but some of their filters allow you to be able to sort of do the live captioning which sort of works uh sometimes but not all the time and you can add alt text to image but you have to go through like a, a few extra steps to be able to find it when you're trying to be able to post something on uh, like a photo on instagram uh, yeah, it's hard to say the most accessible, but the ones that I enjoy using the most that does have accessibility would be Twitter, TikTok, and I, uh, to a certain degree, YouTube. I'll just say this. I mean, Instagram is just a mess. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, this is like, listen, I mean, you probably talked about it before on your, uh, on your stuff, but like, I don't understand, like Instagram doesn't know what it wants to be. No. And that is the most confusing thing. Like when I'm looking at a post, I don't like, it's hard to tell whether it's a reel or a video or a photo or yep. uh, like a story. I have no clue what's happening half the time. And I have no clue as a creator of what I should be posting on there. Cause yeah. I don't know what's going to work and what does. And so that's a whole other thing. Yeah, it's a giant mess. <laughs> it's a definite mess. So what would you say is the biggest misconception that people have about accessibility? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. I think the, the misconception about, with, about accessibility is that we're trying to be able to force people to be able to become more inclusive with accessibility. And when we're trying to be able to take away certain things that people enjoy, for instance, 
there's a bit of a controversy around like say for in the video game side like difficult games like very difficult games like like a bloodborne or a, elden um, like elden ring yeah which is a huge that's a whole other conversation of itself but a lot of people sort of think that and confuse that accessibility just means an easy mode and then that's it which is unfortunate because yes easy mode can be seen as an as an accessibility option but it doesn't give the full accessibility story when it comes to games like elden ring so a lot of people are kind of like who are ignorant to that basically think that like who cares also they also think that there's not a lot of people who are, have a disability that it's just why would you cater to like the point zero one percent of users that have disabilities when the vast majority of people don't well we already went over that at some point you can be disabled at, at, at whether it falls in the three categories we mentioned earlier but also as well a lot of people may not know 15 percent of the world's population has a disability and if you even break that down to the video game side of it about 20 percent of gamers actually have a disability they there's estimate of uh, 400 million gamers with disabilities in the world and that those are not just disability like people do the disabled in and of itself that's people disabled that want to play video games that are that do enjoy playing video games are about 400 million people so that is a significant number and it is a lot more than 0.01 percent just because you may not see or know or hear about a person with disability in your own personal life does not mean that we don't exist and that is i'd say probably the biggest misconception is that we are very small but no we're far far from it definitely so what advice would you give to creators who want to make their content more accessible i know we kind of touched on this earlier but mm-hmm. what advice would you give to creators that want to be more accessible and have their content be accessible as possible um, yeah, I think it just kind of go into on, go what we talked about earlier, uh, but I'd say probably the first step to be able to do it is to learn how to be able to do proper captions for uh, for videos and for, for podcasts. Again, like I said, I get it. It does take a lot of time, especially when you're doing it for the first time, and it can be expensive if you're trying to be able to do it for the first time and you can't do it yourself, so you would pay for someone to be able to do it for you. So it is difficult to do, and I get it. So I would say as amazing as it would be, is if like tomorrow you can make your all your content accessible going forward. That would be awesome. That's the that's the goal to be able to reach. But even within the disability community, we totally understand that that is an unreal expectation for us to be able to demand on that on that creator. So the best way to be able to do it is to start small. So you put out a, a piece of content, whether it's a YouTube video or a podcast, and you're probably more than likely going to be creating clips to be able to post on social media to promote that piece of content. Start with that. Start with with captioning those small little clips that you have. Start by getting into the habit of doing that. So that way, when you post it, it can be as accessible to as possible. Because I think you probably may, I don't know if you discussed this on the show at all, but there was a stat actually going around for the longest time that at least on Facebook, I, don't, I think it's kind of expanded beyond to just more just sort of general social media. Majority of time, people kind of like can watch through videos, uh, usually with the sound off. So yeah. having that those captions are a bit are, are a big deal. And every single social platform does have the capability to at least be able to add captions to your videos, whether it's uploading a file or embedding that and burning that into your content. So start small, start working with that. And then once you kind of get comfortable and into a habit of captioning that content, start by 
trying to be able to expand upon that and add that more of that to, to your videos, either finding services that work with that to be able to pay for that's that's affordable to you or using, like I said, Adobe Premiere with their auto transcription service. And I and I don't know if Final Cut or DaVinci Resolve or anything like that has that capability. I mean, everyone has the capability to be able to add text to a to a video, but not anything to be able to do auto transcription. So sometimes, you know what, just get an auto, just auto transcription off of YouTube or pay for, to have like a quick little uh, auto a transcription that can, you can get a subtitle file from. Those you can import into any video editor and then you just go in and edit it yourself. So that way you have a baseline that you can be at least start that you can just edit from and just edit any mistakes that uh, the transcript auto transcription can, can pick up. And so once you kind of get into that habit, then you start like it starts getting much easier and you can become more efficient at just trying to be able to caption that content. And I'd say that's a good start. And then you can start adding in like the audio descriptions and, and flashing stuff like those stuff are kind of easy to do that you can get of. But it's just more of trying to get into the habit of it, which I get. So if you miss one here and there, that's fine. Just make a concerted effort to try to be able to do the best you can. And we will pick that up. We in the disabled community will see, okay, you're trying to be able to make an effort. We will suggest, hey, you should probably be able to caption more of your content. But as long as you keep trying and you keep expanding, that will be more inclined to be able to follow you and want to be able to consume your content because in, we know at least that you're trying to be able to make an effort to make it more accessible for, uh, for them. Awesome insight, man. I appreciate you. So, and I appreciate you, sir. <laughs> so I know you can't be for all disabled people because everybody has their own disabilities that they're dealing with. But as you've been working on the video game industry for a few years now, what would you say, let's go with the last five years, what would you say has been the biggest advancement in terms of accessibility in the video game space in the past five years, in your opinion? Wow. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been asked that before. That's a great question. The biggest advancement as far as accessibility, I would say, yeah, you know what? Hold on. I got something I can show you. Uh-oh. All right, listeners, we're going to get visual. So we're going to have to actually break it down for people. It's okay. That it's, it's this guy. Oh, it's, the, yeah. uh, it's the Xbox Adaptive Controller, which if you haven't seen it before, it's basically just a kind of a rectangular uh, device that has two large black buttons with an Xbox button and a D-pad on it with a few other buttons like menu buttons and stuff like that. But what's also cool is that on the back of it, there are ports for every single button that is on an Xbox controller. And what those do is that it allows you to be able to plug in a button or or a switch or a pedal or a dial that will allow a, a disabled player um, who has limited mobility in their hands or in their arms or in their fingers to be able to utilize and use a controller for like whenever they're, they're able to play a game. So yes, this is kind of, this is more like a base station for a bunch of different buttons that can, can uh, add to controller. Now this is, this doesn't fix everything. So it's not like you can be able to just use this and then you're good. But what Xbox was able to do as well is that if you have someone that's able to play play a game with you, you can actually be able to use this and an Xbox controller. And it has a feature called Copilot, where essentially you can be able to be able to kind of connect these two to your Xbox and or to a PC. And you can be able to basically use these as one controller, at least the, the, let the game think that this is all just one controller. So you can have someone say like in a racing game, like being able to use a, a, a controller to steer, but uh, you can be able to use the adaptive controller to be able to like accelerate or break or whichever. So allows you both to basically play the game as well. I would say this is probably the biggest advancement because before this, a lot of the uh, accessibility controllers that were out there for those with motor disabilities were either really expensive or hard to build. Like you had to build them from scratch because they just didn't exist. So what Xbox was able to do was able to like create this. So at least that way it could kind of give something to uh, for disabled players to be able to build off of and, and utilize. And it is a great piece of technology. 
it is a little bit more expensive. Sure, it's about a hundred some odd dollars, I think US. But if you think of it this way, it's more expensive in the, uh, because if you th- you have to think of it as more of like, it's an Xbox kind of elite controller than just yeah. a regular controller. Um, if you think in that way, then you know that like that's kind of a little bit more premium. So that's why it's a little bit more expensive. But I'd say this is probably be the biggest advancement for accessibility in the video game industry. Having a company like Microsoft double down and not only make this possible, but also doubling down and making a literal Super Bowl commercial for this guy. In the 2019 Super Bowl, Microsoft released a a commercial for this controller. And that just opened it up to so many people that were watching, like millions of people watching that. And they got to learn a little bit more about accessibility in the video game industry. And that's what this is. Yeah, that is a nifty device, and I've seen uh, people have great success using that controller, so that's definitely legit. Mm-hmm. Steve, before we get out of here, is there anything that we did not cover in this podcast about accessibility that you think that people should know? No, I think we, I think we kind of covered a lot of it. Like, yeah, like thank you for allowing me to be able to ramble. I apologize that I do talk a lot, so uh, I'm so, <laughs> I'm sorry for for all that. But yeah, like, <laughs> no, that's what we do on the podcast. We that's all. Yeah. So I don't. I think I think we covered. That. I think it's just like the the thing I like to be able to kind of say is that we just want to be able to like basically as disabled players, we just want to be able to play the same games that, as as everyone else does, and we want to be able to play games with friends. That's all we really want. It's not it's not about sort of forcing people. Like I said, it's not about trying to be able to, to force studios to be able to make it so that we can be able to play games. Yes, we want to encourage studios to be able to make their games accessible. But there's no better feeling than being able to jump on to uh, like something like Fall Guys or, or Halo and being able to play with our friends and have the same sort of access as, as we all do and we all enjoy. And it's the same with like creating content as well. Like when you have a piece of content that you can be able to watch and it's accessible to as many people as possible it only just expands your audience from there and in it can help grow your audience in, in a way like you have the ability like if you're a youtuber you have the ability to be able to check to see like how many people are looking at your content with subtitles and i can guarantee if you add proper subtitles to your videos you will start to see an in, uh, an increase of people watching your content like when yep. i first started doing blind gamer i didn't have subtitles I was only doing it because I was a let's player and I wanted to be able to like my niche was that I was blind and it was just more funny to watch me fail at playing games than it was for me to do well. And that was how my YouTube channel started. But over over the period of time, once I like once I started adding proper captions to my videos, I started to see that percentage of people watching it with subtitles on go up. Now, is it like 100 percent or even close to like even 50 percent? No. But for the those folks who definitely needed it and would prefer it. I gave them that access and that allowed them to be able to watch the video. And I can guarantee that you'll, you'll give that same access to someone else that wants to be able to enjoy your content and wants to be able to subscribe. Like I, I have seen and heard from so many uh, disabled folks that if a, a content creator that they discovered and found on YouTube via the algorithm and they, and they found that their videos were captioned, that was an immediate subscribe for them. The fact that they took the time to be able to make that caption, that just that was an immediate subscribe. So if you think of it this way, you're losing subscribers by not by not making your content accessible. So do with that information what you will. <laughs> Ooh, I love it, man. I love it. Steve Taylor, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, my dude. If the people want to follow your airplane, where where are the best places to follow you at? Um, yeah, you can be able to follow me, uh, youtube.com slash snowball. Yes, that is my, the actual URL. I've been a, a YouTuber since literally the year it started, 2005. So Ooh. I've been working on, I've had that for a year or a while. So yeah, youtube.com slash snowball, or you can find me on Twitter uh, at Steve Saylor, uh, Saylor's S-A-Y-L-O-R. And you can be able to also find me on Twitch. I'm a Twitch ambassador at twitch.tv slash blind gamer Steve. 
awesome, man. I appreciate you making the time to be here today. So thank you for all the insights about accessibility. And I appreciate all of y'all listening to the podcast. I will be back next week with another episode of Tube Talk presented by VidIQ. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tube Talk brought to you by VidIQ. Head over to vidiq.com slash tube talk for today's show notes and previous episodes. Enjoy the rest of your video making day.